Manu Chowdhury, welcome to the show. Hey, Paul. Hey, Tim. Well, Hello. To be here. Yeah, great to have you on, Manu. Um, so give us a background as to how you got involved and interested in the financial markets. Where did that stem from? It comes from a, a, a very misspent uh, first year of university, basically thinking I was a, a, a stockbroking genius buying tech stocks. Uh, in the late 90s and making money. Um, not because I was good at what I was doing, but because the market was going up. So, What did what did you read, Manny? I did psychology and pharmacology. That sounds like I can't think of two better subjects to be steering you through this uh, current um, murderous farce. Uh, yes, it's it's quite funny how things work out. But uh, but, but yeah, so that, that, that was my first exposure to financial markets. I thought I was a genius because the market was, was moving in my direction and, you know, uh, the, 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 the tide obviously raises all ships. So my selection of stocks really had no bearing on what, what happened. Then obviously we saw the correction. Um, and then I, I managed, I think I turned maybe about five or six K of my student loan into about 30 or 40 grand. And I thought I was, I was basically Gordon Gecko. Can you remember, um, can you remember the stocks you traded? Cause it's a lovely uh, blast I made, from the past. Oh, wow. Gosh, you, now, now you're asking me. So <laughs> I made the most amount of money, I think on Kingston Communications. That was a phenomenal trade, but, but That's obviously still going, I, isn't it? Uh, is it probably maybe? I'm not okay, sure. it was it was it was somewhat overvalued. Shall this, we say? This, in the is, late 90s. this is sounding like a late nineties anecdote, you know, supreme. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll be saying it was Arm Holdings as well. I bet Arm. Oh, was no, I, I didn't. I didn't. I, I had a lot of I had a lot of very high risk speculative biotech companies yeah. that had no products or IP that I thought would be brilliant to buy. <laughs> was that also because you studied ph- pharmaceuticals? It, it, yes, exactly. I, yeah. I uh, pro- probably as a, as a consequence of that, I was quite interested in. Drug development. I was, I was interested in the life cycle of, of how you know, drugs are created, how they come to market. So that was the other reason. But essentially, I, I managed to then lose about ninety five percent, and and I got this syndrome, which I refer to as get evenitis, which is now I just hold. Eventually, this was a trading position. Now it's actually an investment, a long term investment. I still I still sometimes get um, get letters. I think who was it the other day? The Seness Pharmaceuticals that I, I bought at several pounds, which is I think uh, now delisted because it's it was it was it's not worth anything at all. So. It, this really opened my eyes to make realize actually all of these things that I've I've kind of read about or seen it's really easy to make mar- money in markets is utter nonsense it's actually really difficult and one of the the I guess one of the greatest learnings I had from that process it made me it made me really understand that that actually if you listen to the mainstream media narrative if you listen to what everyone is saying you will ultimately end up losing your shirt you've got to basically think differently you've got to think about every single investment you make from a first principles perspective and um and, and I still I still hold that to be the case now. But it, it also that, I, it also points to sorry to cut in, it also points to the fact that ideally your first investment, your first trade should be a lose a loss making trade because that won't give you overconfidence. Absolutely, absolutely. If my first trade hadn't done what my first trade did, I would have probably made some money and maybe, you know, and, and here's the other thing, you know, bank profits when you get the opportunity to, you know, take some money off the table. I never did that. Um but, but again, these are all, all, all learnings, and, and it kind of really fueled my, my interest and desire. So I was at a bit of a, an interesting juncture where I thought, you know, do I go into research? And then I, I, I saw how much they were paying in research, and I was like, wow, is this a monthly? Oh, annual salary. Okay, maybe not. <laughs> wow. I, I have quite a lot more student debt than I was expecting to have at this point because of my wonderful trading. So I thought, oh, I'll, I'll maybe, you know, do a master's and, 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 and try and get into banking. So eventually I, I kind of finished my master's, went to work for an FX broker. And then uh, after doing that for a couple of years, went to work for uh, what was Barclays Capital at the time, which is now Barclays Investment Bank. Um, and then again, 
you know, interesting period of time, left in 2007 because I had a couple of concerns over over the, the bank's exposure to uh, to mortgage-backed securities, joined Lloyd's. What gave you that idea that it'd be, that was that was something of concern? Well, okay, interestingly, so what <laughs> happened was that... The, so the three dancing girls that owned 400 properties each. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it, was, it was something much weirder. So the, the head of, of uh, uh, basically mortgage-backed securities trading, I don't know what happened, but I remember I, I went, uh, went to the office and, and apparently he'd, he'd been, I don't know, he'd been away the weekend. He just hadn't come into the office for quite a while. And then I heard that he'd actually hired Princess Diana's divorce lawyer to come and represent him at the office. And I thought, that's a weird thing for someone to do. What has he done? Um, obviously, he knew the writing was on the wall and he just disappeared because clearly he was, uh, he was being uh, requested to, uh, to come and explain himself to regulators and probably decided he didn't want to do that. But that was when I thought, this mortgage-backed security thing, this might be a bit of a problem. Uh, I wonder how big a problem it's going to be. But again, I, I, was, I was quite naive to just how much of a a cataclysm this was creating. So I, I left there in 2007 and, and uh, joined Lloyd's. Uh, and ironically, uh, that's when we uh, out, out of the frying pan. Well, it was true. You know, here's the funny thing. I still remember my, my interview and, and uh, the people interviewing me was, were, were always saying, hey, look, we're not like Barclays. They're sub-investment grade, which obviously they weren't. But uh, Lloyd's was AAA. They said, you know, we're AAA. You know, we deal with the Bank of England. Quite frankly, every bank, every UK clearer deals with the Bank of England. But um, and I thought, yeah, this is a great move, and and this should be good. But but the one thing that I I, I was really interested in and and attracted by was essentially the mindset. So the mindset and the culture of Barclays was very different, which is essentially our job is to make money out of clients at any cost for the benefit of the bank, which is an interesting ideology, not one I think is a very good one. The ideology of Lloyd's is very different, which is that look, we have a partnership um, with these clients. Our job is to make economic return but not an excessive economic return because we want to build a franchise. We want to basically build a business where everyone comes back to do more trades next year and the year after. Whereas Barclays was far more of a churn and burn operation. You know, if, if clients didn't deal with them, they didn't really care. Like, so I, like I, Goldman Sachs, perhaps. Uh, a bit like Goldman Sachs, but not as good. Goldman Sachs are pretty awesome. Barclays, yeah, they're okay. <laughs> they're no Goldman Sachs. You mentioned um, AAA. I'm just going just gonna to wheel out an, an old um, anecdote um, to annoy all those people that... Uh, think that I speak too much on the podcast anyway. So in your face, losers. Um, and it's basically from uh, the, the early days I was working in the bond market. And there was a, an anecdote that people told me about a, an Italian colleague. And he said, and this is this is very geeky, but it was, uh, he said, what was Italy before the figure? So there was probably something like RPI or CPI had come out in the States at like 130 or one of the, the big US reports had come out. And he said, what was Italy before the figure? And I think what he meant was, where was the 10-year BTP trading before the figure? But anyhow, it was, what was Italy trading before the figure? And someone else said, AAA. So that was at a time when Italy was actually a AAA-rated um, <laughs> government. But clearly, that's a long time passing. It's a long time ago. I now realize his anecdote will only have appeal to very, very elderly people who've worked in the bond market. So Did, I probably shouldn't have mentioned it. We so just got electricity when that started, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like that um, Rodney Dangerfield quote. Hey, babe, I bet you were something before electricity. Um, <laughs> anyway, anyway, sorry, Manu, I, I interrupted you uh, brutally and, uh, and completely unnecessarily. No, 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 that, that, that's fine. That's fine. So, um, but, but that's ironically actually where, where Paul, you and I first met, right? Yes. In 2007, I think. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, so that that was that was an interesting period of time as as we went through what was the uh, certainly the most challenging financial markets I've end, ever seen. End of career. the world, part one. 
uh, end of the world part one, yes. But I'll tell you something interesting, though. I, I, it took me about five or six years to work this out, but I eventually worked out something really interesting. So I, I thought naively that the financial crisis ended in 2009 because I, I and, and the reason I remember the day was the 9th of March, 2009. Well, that was when the market, that's when the market's bottomed, certainly. Exactly. That, that, is, that is when they bottomed and, and they began to go up. And I, 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 I was looking around for a couple of years to work out, well, why did this happen? What was done? Who did it? But you were quite and, bullish then, Manu. I, re- I remember because I, I, I was looking at some commodity turns and expecting a bounce, but I was very skeptical. I've got to be honest. I didn't think it would continue because I didn't think that the whole crisis had been solved and i thought that look all we've done is um just patched it up for a bit and it's going to come back but boy i didn't realize how long that would last for but you you seem to be more sort of cautious but positive that the markets would go up from what i remember yeah so look i absolutely i i uh, again look i was super bullish on gold obviously uh at, at the time and still you know still one of my favorite investments uh i i'm a big fan of gold and, and I, I guess i would have probably been back in those days a bit of a gold bug so yes that was that was a pretty sweet trade uh between between then and t- certainly 2011. um but what i discovered when i looked into this was there was a i think when it wasn't a senator i think it was actually a congressman called barney frank um who passed a piece of legislation that essentially removed the requirement for uh, banks to have mark-to-market reporting for illiquid assets. So they that did Dodd, was that Dodd-Frank? So it's the same Frank from Dodd-Frank, but Dodd-Frank yeah. was a slightly different piece of legislation. But, uh, but, but So he, he passed this, and essentially they didn't have to mark-to-market report. And suddenly they could say, well, you know, we're marking this down at, uh, at, at par. We're saying yeah. it's whatever we want it to be. Whatever Basically, we yeah. Be. So it's exactly what happened. And then you had the situation whereby, again, I, I kind of thought, hey, fantastic, everything's over. But but really, you just had this transition from what was a huge burden uh, in in uh, basically listed, uh, the banishment of listed companies being transitioned and pushed into into governments. And you can see it with when you look at the numbers. So Manu, remember just, when I was looking. Oh, sorry, just to cut in, just for people who might not quite understand the effect of the 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 massive effect of that could you just explain it in simple terms because not everybody understands the financial elements yeah sure um so in terms of the the debt expansion no in terms of their mark to market what what the mark to market Ah, okay yeah Yeah, okay fine 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 so okay so so uh, again having spent my entire career working in 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 derivatives which are always mark to market yeah it's 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 all, all fun and games really but essentially what it means is Basically, you go out to auction and you look at what people will pay for something at any given moment in time. And the problem you have is that when you have a very illiquid asset and there's an absence of buyers, the price will be one fraction of what it's truly worth because there are no buyers if you are forced to sell it. So it's ba- basically like me saying I've got a stack of VHS videos and I and I bought them for 30 quid a pop. And I'm Therefore, gonna, they I, are worth 30, 30 quid a pop, even though they, yep. you know, I couldn't give them away. Exactly. So, yeah. so the way the way the mark to market reporting would work would be you would pick up the phone to to me, for instance, and say, "What are you willing to pay?" And I'd say, "I don't know. I'll give you a quid." Right. That's basically what it is with these illiquid assets, because there's no real market where you can you can try and work out what something is actually worth, because it, it, it they weren't tradable. They they were basically derivatives of uh, essentially uh, bonds or derivatives of derivatives of bonds. Right. So so that's what should have happened. It should have been marked to market, but they weren't marked to market. So you, could they just no. decide them? They could just decide themselves what they thought it was worth. And so they value Absolutely. them at what's called par, which basically means what they paid for it. 
Exactly. That's exactly what people did. Yeah. And uh, and then you saw this wonderful recovery, which was entirely unsound, and 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 continued for for again, look, a lot longer than I expected it to, but but it did continue. But it, but it was very telling. All you had to do was look at the debt levels, and it was very telling what was actually happening. So prior to 2008, you look at the G7 debt to GDP ratio was probably around about 60% or so. Post financial crisis, it was kind of heading towards the high 80s. Um, and then over the last couple of years, it, it kind of was pushing towards 100. Now it's about 150%. So you, you're seeing this huge burden of debt grow at, at what is a pretty phenomenal pace. And there's going to be a point in the future. Is it going to be this year, next year, this decade? I don't know. But at some point, there's going to be a bit of a cataclysm, I think. I, th- I think that's already in, in train. I think it's already in process myself. Yeah, look, I think you're right. I think I think these these things take a little bit of of time to to really, I, I guess, manifest. But then then things move very very quickly, like the old you know the the Hemingway quote: "How do you go bankrupt or slowly, and then all at once?" Yes, that, that's exactly how it's going to happen. Actually, yes. I was thinking back to the when you said about the debt to GDP ratios, and of course, we saw what happened in Japan, where they've gone to. I'm going to guess somewhere like 400%, but wasn't the Maastricht, Maastricht Treaty supposed to prevent that? And there was, there was just no oversight, really. Um, if you look at the original, I mean, bringing it into like what was happening with the euro and the rules that were in place. But everybody, everybody fudged the numbers, including the Germans themselves. Of course the they whole, did. The whole, the whole thing was a crock. Well, as soon as, as soon as the Germans needed to spend more money and go beyond that level, that's when they decided to go, oh, you know, these rules, can we just sort of forget that they exist? And of course, Italy was going, yeah, love that. And so was Greece. But, um, but it, but that's why I, I'm going to I'm going to attempt a very very dull uh, financial joke that I've tried I've tried several times to float and it's never worked. So there's every reason why it will fail now. Like the German saying, "Don't mention the VAR." <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. I, I mean that's Paul, actually quite a sophi- it's quite a sophisticated joke. Um, that is quite a good one. But again, you, very very niche niche window of of, of uh, maybe people that will understand I'm, it though. I'm going to follow the rule of never explain a joke though. Yeah, it, never apologize, never explain. Yeah. So um, value at risk is VAR. So and and the war. So I'll let you draw your own conclusions to that. But so that takes us up to a uh, so you 2009. Yeah. So you're looking at the markets. You're thinking. These could go up a bit, but the problems haven't been solved. You're looking at gold as an answer. What happened then, Manu? Well, again, look, I, I, I had I had this idea or I had this notion in my mind that that that, that gold was the 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 benchmark hedge for really worst case disaster insurance, which it kind of is. But what I didn't really understand was actually gold is really not the best way to to, to hedge that. You have to have a portfolio of a couple of things. So what I didn't do was I didn't bother looking at, at silver, which I should have done. Um, and, and the one thing I missed completely, uh, probably till about 2011, when it was a little bit too late, was were the gold and silver miners. They are phenomenal, phenomenal hedges, particularly when you're in that 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 end phase of a of a, of a gold bull run as well. Have you been Manu, reading? Manu, tip, uh, tip, Manu, uh, tip, Manu, I, I just want to have your babies. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, were you reading the Price Value Partners uh, website? You know, I no, I, 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 I certainly, not, certainly not back in those times. No, no, definitely not. But but I, I Manu, you can I, give me your phone number later. Okay, <laughs> no get your coat. You've pulled. 
Um, but but look, this was this was a really important learning curve, and it really laid the foundation for, I guess, my 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 next step. So again, in this in this period of time, a couple of friends started talking to me about uh, about Bitcoin. In fact, Paul, I think you were mining Bitcoin. I think I remember you telling me in 2011, um, and. I read the white paper by 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 Satoshi Nakamoto, this uh, this ubiquitous character uh, that I, I think, quite frankly, was either a group of people or a government. Definitely wasn't one person. And I, I kind of read the been, white he's paper. He's been a hodler, though, hasn't he? To be fair, yes. Satoshi. Yeah. He has, yeah, he has. Well, they, he has. They have. They have, yeah, absolutely, definitely. Maybe they're waiting for 100k. I'm not sure, but um, so I I read the white paper and. I looked at the the actual basis of what they were proposing. I thought, actually, yeah, it's quite neat. I like what they're doing. But fundamentally, where I had a problem was that it was a public ledger that could be queried by anyone. And that was kind of where I looked and thought, yeah, this this feels a bit like a state surveillance tool. And I kind of, you know, stupidly chose not even to stick a couple of hundred quid in, which I wish I had done. And then what happened was that in, in 2017, a friend of mine had sold his business and he emigrated to Australia. And he, he rang me up and asked me a really weird question. He said, hey, I have a little bit of gold that I need to get out of the country. What do you think is the best way of doing it? And I said, well, I don't know, just declare it. And by a little bit of gold, he didn't have an ounce or two. He had a couple of hundred grand's worth of gold um, in his house, several places. And his biggest headache was working out how the hell to get it from the UK to Australia. And he really struggled with it. And then suddenly everything that I had kind of thought was a bulletproof hedge, worst case disaster insurance began to kind of collapse because I thought, well, hang on, this is a really valid thing. I mean, I'm, I'm probably unlikely to emigrate to Australia, but if I want to take my gold to another country, how do I do it? And the answer is you can do it, but it's very difficult. Is, uh, is, isn't it easy just to use a service like Gold Money or Bullion Vault and, and custody it through, or is, is that is that not pure enough for you? So look, that that's exactly how I, I would have done it back in those days. That, that's not yeah. how my uh, my friend did it. He had all of it in his house. So he, Again, literally, he literally had to ship it out. So, yeah. what, what, yeah, did so he, what did he do then? Do you know? So in the end, you, yeah, no, no, I, I do. In the end, he basically converted it, or a lot of it, to Bitcoin. Right. And then I thought, ha, ah, Bitcoin, interesting. Suddenly I've got this use case. And that, I, I, I kind of went back to it because I, I kind of given up. And I thought, hey, this Bitcoin thing, it's a scam. It's a fraud. I don't want to be involved in this. But when I saw the real world application of it, I thought, bloody hell, actually, maybe I'm missing something. And this is and this is coming from someone who used to work at Lloyd's. Yes, that's correct. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, so that, that came across as a bit, of a, a bit of a snub. It wasn't meant meant to be. Tim, I'll have you know that Lloyd's is the Goldman Sachs of banks with horses. <laughs> that's right. In, in the giant, world of banks, giant, a giant vampire black horse. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. Um, relentless, yeah, we were, relentlessly galloping towards disaster. Yeah, we we were we were the we were the cutting edge of of technology. Um, you know, I think we were the last adapters of quite a few risk management metrics, which is quite interesting. But I was just anyway. going to say, I would have thought one of the problems is, is is legacy systems. Whenever I think high street banks, I think legacy systems. Uh, yes, absolutely. I, I always find it hilarious when the banks talk about how much their tech spend is, and then when yeah. you you think, oh, oh, amazing, you know, a billion, two billion, wow, and then you actually look at what has actually been spent. Um, by these these corporations on on tech and, and actually it's not really tech it's maintenance it's not mm. new 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 technology not investment it's 90 percent maintaining legacy systems that don't really work very well we should have dixie is, back uh, on to talk about that she knows all about that dixie deville i could a, i could listen to dixie i could whistle the oh. you just imagine someone just drifting off into a reverie of uh well i i think i've said enough yeah um so um so so you you decided that 
that um, Bitcoin itself might have a use. And then what happened after that? So, so what happened after that was, okay, it's quite interesting. So I, the, the penny dropped about Bitcoin because I, I couldn't in my head reconcile what is it that, that this Bitcoin thing is? What is it that makes it so incredible? What, where is the real value? And obviously you have a couple of components of it. You have the, the, the digital currency, you have the, the blockchain it runs on, but it was actually a combination of the two. So what it was, was the penny dropped for me in December 2017, which by the way, timing wise, not the smartest time in the, in the world to be getting into Bitcoin. But anyway, penny dropped in December 2017. And what I realized was that essentially what, what made Bitcoin so unique was the fact that Satoshi, or whoever Satoshi was, created a digital signature that could not be forged. And that's when I thought, wow, this has got some incredible use cases. And the current use case of digital currency is very narrow. The future of this could be absolutely insane. So I obviously, because again, I, I had this, this, this epiphany, thought, let me buy a small amount now. Where are we trading? Oh, $18,000, that's a good price. Uh, and then I remember the CME launched the Bitcoin futures contract one day later. Yeah, you saw like a 35% drop in the price. And then that continued for quite a while. So so again, I was kind of buying those dips, but those dips kept on coming for a little while. So did you feel so, shades of of uh, late 90s or early 2000 investment in dot-com? Uh, did you get that same feeling that, that potentially that was going on? Or, or did you feel strongly enough that about it that you thought it would recover? No, I, I I didn't. I didn't. I think my friends thought I was having a mental breakdown because I was saying, hey, you should really look at this asset. And they're like, what, the one that's fallen 30% in the last week? Yes, that one. It's it's really good. It's phenomenal. So, um, yeah, I, I think uh, I think there was a period of time where, where they, they, they thought I'd become unhinged. But again, quite frankly, they didn't really understand um, the the nuances of what I discovered. But I, I you know, I was, I mean, look, the, I, I wasn't buying huge amounts or, or anything. You know, I was buying very small quantities of this. So it's not, you know, these, these are not, these are not huge amounts of capital I was deploying. But it was the fact that, you know, the, the principle of this asset I thought was pretty novel. And, and that's the other thing that I realized was that it's not every day that you create a new asset class, which is what we have done. So I, I sorry, was, to, sorry to interrupt, Manny. What would you say now uh, to the argument that, or the, the the supposition that Bitcoin is neither, or for that matter, cryptocurrency is neither land, labor, nor capital? I disagree. I would say it, it is it is it is property, or yeah, I'd say it is it is the apex property that yeah. you can have that is and as 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 demonstrated by my my good friend who who essentially liquidated something he was unable to get out of the UK and took it. And and again, you know, this was not something that he was he'd done surreptitiously. He'd he'd basically earned his money, paid his taxes, and he'd bought this. And he was just obviously clearly more frightened of the state and uh, and 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 world governments than I was. But you know, this was his. His thought process, his logic. So, I, I disagree with that slightly. And, and look, things have evolved, and my understanding of of Bitcoin has changed slightly. So, look, I I'm a huge fan of Bitcoin, but there are other things I think that are more important. Well, I think uh, the one the one thing that you said I think which is hugely relevant, particularly right now, is there's never one uh, answer. It, it always makes sense, particularly in a time of acute uncertainty and risk. It always makes sense to have several. You know one answers so for, for example you mentioned earlier not just gold but gold and silver and not just gold and silver but gold and silver miners and yep. obviously i couldn't agree more but i i would i would you know accept the argument that maybe also if, if if it's only for play money you also have a bit of crypto or bitcoin or whatever because yeah, you just don't know exactly exactly yeah. exactly sorry manu you you should really answer that 
No, no, I agree. I agree. And 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 what's interesting is I I was reminded by a friend of mine about something that was quite interesting. Again, this was this was this was just before I uh, I, I began to to have the epiphany with with Bitcoin, which was essentially that if you look at what happened in I think it was 1933. So Teddy Roosevelt decided to sign an executive order that made the private ownership of gold Franklin, illegal. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, I'll have you have. Oh, is it? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, was, I think it was May, May 1933. And yeah. that law made it illegal for private citizens to own gold. And that was only repealed in 1971 when, obviously, Nixon temporarily came off the gold standard. So yeah, it's, it's only temporary. Nobody, nobody ever actually went to prison for it, though. So I don't think it, I don't think it was ever actually technically in, uh, enforced. My fear of it was, was exactly, of Bitcoin, was exactly that, that it would, because it was so, it could, well, basically challenge the financial system. So therefore, they could make it illegal. And then what would we do? I mean, it, it, it's a bit like trying to shut down the internet in, in terms of if you were to trade in it, it would be impossible to actually stop. But if the governments do say, look, you're going to prison if you if you transact any of these uh, Bitcoin and you've got to, whatever you've got, you've got to convert to, um, to, to a fiat currency. Um, that that was why I th personally thought no, this this could really go wrong horribly, and I was expecting at some point the governments to make more and more noises about how they 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 don't like it. So it was it was that that I w I'm not worried about gold in that sense because I don't think gold actually is is in any way a a threat. But I think because Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies are, they could still do that. Well, you'd you'd have to be very very careful how you how you try to to push that through. In other words, try and make gold illegal, given that gold is this principal reserve asset of central banks. So it would look like the the biggest form of hypocrisy to say, well, you, the little people can't have it, but we're going to keep it as backing for our currency. So you know, fuck the rest of the world. Yeah, I, I, that's just one of a list of things that would be hypocritical about it. Um, but the main problem is that they are printing money, not commensurate with their gold holdings. So, mm. so as we know, their fiat, fiat currencies is just what it was. Um, I, I've been listening again to a, an audio book of Sapiens, which I read, because like all good books and good movies, it's worth watching. Bears, re bears repetition. Definitely. And so um, when, they, when he talks about money, and I wondered what you what you guys thought of this. Um, it kind of passed me by a little bit the first time, but I listened again more carefully. And he said, "What money is 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 trust," and and I thought, yeah, that's actually what money is because whether you've got a, a pound or you've got a dollar or you've got a piece of Bitcoin, it's in the old days it had intrinsic value when it was a gold coin because mm. that had something to it. But it's never been really about that. It's been about trust. I trust that you will put value on this particular item, and it's not a barter system, so it has greater use. And therefore, we could argue that that Bitcoin is a currency because other people trust that it is, and it doesn't matter whether we think it is or not. They are willing to convert gold into Bitcoin and 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 back again. And as long as they're willing to do that. Now, again, one of the big problems I could foresee with it is, well, somebody else could just duplicate the technology and create their own Bitcoin. And could we just do this ad infinitum? And that's happening with cryptocurrencies. Generally, that has. Isn't it? There that, are thousands of them. But then I thought, well, yeah, but that means that's like the equivalent of me saying, 
well, there's the Mona Lisa. I could just paint that. And then I've got a Mona Lisa as well. But it's, but, but it's also like saying that in the nineteen in the nineteenth century there were multiple currencies. All duke, even in one country, even say the U.S., there were multiple currencies, and they all duked it out. And you know, basically the the ones that had proper faith, uh, trust in them, um, won over the ones that basically were were scams. So if you, if you look at the text on a, a dollar bill. Uh, it says it's backed by the full faith and credit of the United, of the U.S. government, mm. and credit itself comes from the Latin credere, which means to believe. So the whole thing is trust based, yes. which is why the whole disaster of this current environment is is so dangerous. It's when trust goes, it's perhaps impossible to get to ever get it back. What do you think about that, Manu? About the the idea of it being trust. I think I think that's that's a pretty interesting way of describing it. I think if you look at if you look at the calamities we've seen in terms of of, of the hyperinflation in the Weimar Republic, you know, what is it that created that? And ultimately, obviously, the printing of money is important. It's it's very important, very relevant. But it was the moment in time when the people lost faith in government. That was when you saw the the the, the huge collapse. So you're right. I think it is it is trust. That's a pretty succinct way of describing it. A lot of uh, a lot of very strange things have been used as money in the past, and that to, to some people can be quite a surprise. But um, shells have been used, um, tally sticks have been used, giant stone statues. Really? Yeah, that's uh, the I, f- I forget the precise Polynesian island, but it's it's you, you, you'll know these things. So they, they, these giant stone monoliths. Oh, so, on Easter Island. Easter think. Island. That's right. That's were they right. used as money then? I didn't. I mean, know that. They were used as money. Oh, that's so interesting. And and leaves were used as money. I remember there was a. Um... I'm more of a twig man myself. <laughs> well, being near Hampstead Heath, that's. Right. Hang on, how, how did you? Uh, how did you get it change for your giant head? <laughs> yes. Yes. Do you have change? Maybe you got many ones like that, that have just been lost. It's like if you want, you know, that's that that's a full yard that one. But th- this is like this small one is worth you know couple of quid perhaps i don't know branches everywhere <laughs> so that may be the worst joke i've ever committed on this show and i've committed some real whoppers in the past you know that i missed that and i normally get it so <laughs> and i'm willing to admit it um so so manu what um what do you so bitcoin you like the idea of bitcoin but as we know there's more than just Bitcoin. What else is out there? Or, or do, you, do you think just Bitcoin or do you look at the other flavors of cryptocurrency? So look, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Bitcoin. I think, I think it is, it, it is a, 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 an absolutely awesome asset. I, I, I really genuinely do think it is, is very good. But we are right at the beginning of this journey. And one of the biggest issues or one of the biggest problems you have is that when you have an asset like Bitcoin that in the last decade has had a compound annual growth rate of about 220% per annum. Now, sorry, is, is that in terms of mark-to-market value or is that in terms of use, take-up? Uh, so, no, that, that's in terms of actually nominal value right. increase. Um, but but the rate of, of, of growth of uses has, has increased, you know, scaled exponentially. So I think if I look, uh, and again, this is covering actually all digital assets, but quite frankly, everyone in this space, if, if they don't own some Bitcoin, they will probably have some exposure to it somewhere. Mm. But I think I think when I got into it in 2017, there was less than 10 million people in the world that owned any digital asset, be it Bitcoin, be it Ethereum. Um, I think at the beginning of 2020, that number was about about uh, about 70 or 80 million. It's now close to 250. 
million, but that's out of seven billion. So it's yes, still, it's still it is some still, ways to go. Absolutely, it is still tiny. What, I mean, we're, we're going to make it, this is a slightly screeching handbrake turn. But what, what, to what extent are you, do you have concerns, fears, hopes in relation to central bank digital currency? So, okay, slightly mixed views on these. So, essentially, if you look at the developing world, I think central bank digital currencies are amazing. I genuinely think they they will be a game changer for helping to create a more financially inclusive society. But what's the benefit to the user as opposed to the issuer? So the benefit to the user is basically accessing the financial system. There are there are huge swathes of, of population in, in places like rural India that have access to mobile phones, but don't have access to banking. So I think this is a, a game changer for those individuals. So doesn't, it, emer- doesn't it disintermediate so, the banks, though, just to interject on that point? Well, that's exactly what, that's exactly what you said, Manu. So it, it kind of depends on how you do it. So th- there's there's a couple of different ways of, of, of creating the, the central bank digital currencies. And essentially, one of those ways is having a, a wallet directly with the central bank, which, by the way, I think is a very bad idea. And the other is to have a wallet that's intermediated by a commercial bank, which I think is a much better idea. And again, the, the reason that it's it's incredibly important to make sure that you have banks um, within a, 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 a you know you know within an EM country or a developed world is because they're so incredibly um, I guess they're so incredibly important in terms of money creation. So notwithstanding the last twenty months where central banks have gone slightly nuts, um, historically the majority of money was created by commercial, by commercial banks. banks. Yeah. Yeah. So if you look at the the big the the, the big boom of of, uh, of China when they were eventually allowed into the World Trade Organization. You know, what was the first thing they did? Well, they created 2,000 regional banks um, because they understand how the, the monetary system works. But and what, what, was, what have, Sorry, go sorry, on. I was going to say, and what, what have we done in, in the UK and Europe? Well, you know, in that same, you know, in that same period, uh, we've, we've probably seen the demise of about 5,000 banks in, in Europe and probably about 2,500, 3,000 in the United States. Well, what, what do you say to the, the concern that if you have a central bank digital currency, that basically outlaws physical cash, then we can all be corralled into a basically a killing pen whereby interest rates can be set as negatively as central banks want. There's no escape from that. And they can turn it on and off like a Chinese social credit score. Um, I think, unfortunately, that is the objective for the West. So, uh, because personally, I, I, I cannot live in that world. I, I will move heaven and earth to ensure that that, that world never comes to pass. So I've got some real concerns because, yeah, you're right. The real objective, certainly in the developed world, where we don't really need the central bank digital currency, if we're being entirely honest. Yeah. Um, because I can, the commercial banks work perfectly fine. In the United States, maybe, because their financial system still seems to work on some kind of 1925 tech. I'm not sure what happened there. But if I want to pay you a, a faster payment today, I can pay it today and you'll get it within the next 25 minutes. Mm. Um, do we really need it? I don't think so. But... The real objective here is, is ultimately what is the goal? The goal is to combine monetary and fiscal policy. Yeah. So you could have your individual tax rate. And if you say something not so good about the government, that tax rate goes up, I'm sure. Mm. Um, so it's essentially exactly a... Individual tax rates. That's that's frightening. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? In, in real time. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a... Yeah, that is worrying. So, so the two things I'm, I'm keen to try and push... Uh, how much progress I'm going to make on this, I'm not entirely sure, are, are basically, A, making sure the banking doesn't disintermediate the commercial banks. That would be absolute suicide for the economy. And the second is to have some layer or some level of privacy. Right now, if I go to the BP garage at four in the morning and buy a stick of gum, that is logged, registered. 
the government doesn't need to know what I'm buying at four in the morning, quite frankly, particularly not a stick of gum. They They could find out by your your credit card records, though, couldn't they, unless you're paying cash? they, they could, but it's a much more lengthy process. Whereas with this, it's accessible very, very quickly. So I, I think there needs to be, you know, and if it's not £10,000, maybe 5000 or even 1000 but there needs to be some kind of flaw, some kind of level of privacy there. And that doesn't exist today. It's not even, it's not even talked about. But it exists with cash. It exists absolutely with cash. It, it, it exists with, uh, with, with physical gold and silver. And it exists with some cryptocurrencies, but not, block, uh, not, uh, not Bitcoin. Mm. What cryptocurrencies are highest up the list when it comes to privacy so okay it's probably worthwhile just explaining what the what the issues or problems are with 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 bitcoin so essentially again i don't know why the media pushes this narrative probably to try and bamboozle people with 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 things that are not particularly true but essentially the media always talks about bitcoin being anonymous it's not it's pseudonymous it's not anonymous yes you have a wallet address but it's very easy to reconcile who owns which wallet and because it is a public blockchain, I can query that blockchain. So let's say, let's say, Paul, you have a Bitcoin wallet. I have your address. I can ping your address and I can find out how much Bitcoin you own. Not only can I find out how much Bitcoin you own, I can find out exactly what you spent, all the, all the Bitcoin you spent so far, what you've bought with it historically since the start of time of that wallet. Well, I can then look shops at shops I've, I've spent the money in. Exactly. Really? How much is really? It's it's very transparent. I mean, it takes a bit of doing to be honest. But I thought but, you but, could see the wallet addresses of where you transacted, but I didn't think you could you could actually connect them. Absolutely. Well, you you can if you use something like CipherTrace or, or one of these blockchain analytics companies. <laughs> right. Okay. Who just partnered with HMRC? Interesting. Um, but 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 yeah. So so it's so this is some fundamentally something that that, that I I don't think is a great thing. And and I'll give you an example of this. So. I remember speaking to a family office that I used to deal with. When was it? Probably back end of 2019, early 2020. And they were they were talking to me about digital assets and said, "Look, we're going to buy some Bitcoin." I did say, "Look, Bitcoin's great, but you have to be aware that you're creating a bit of a rod for your own back, which is that if that information about that wallet address escapes into the ether, you are very exposed." And then, lo and behold, in the middle of last year, they came back and said, "Yeah, you know, we've realised that actually having something like this, where we have X million in a wallet," is just putting us at the top end of a kidnap list. And I was like, yeah, potentially, which is when they decided to move into the more privacy-focused coins. In terms of, of privacy coins, the, the, the one that I'm, I'm probably the biggest fan of is, is, is one called Monero. And essentially, this was created by a bunch of libertarians who decided that they want to put a line of delineation between, you know, exactly, essentially, where the, uh, where the state had, uh, had a little bit uh, of reach or not. And essentially, the ethos behind this was to try and create offshore banking for the average person, which is basically what they did. And the reason that I, I like this is not necessarily the best technology, because it's not. There are better techs available, but it's because of the community. So it's the network effect. So if you look at the number of developers that volunteer on the Monero project, it's number three behind Bitcoin and Ethereum. I think last time I looked, it was about 35,000 developers volunteer on that project. So if there's an issue or a problem, it's fixed very, very quickly. And this is a very you know, robust community of libertarians that, that really want to make sure that there is some degree of privacy left for humanity as we, as we venture into this uh, interesting journey that we're on right now. How can you stop? Um, well, this is a very difficult question to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I'm sure there's, that somebody else would ask you it. How would you stop the use of um, illegal activity going through something like Monero. So, if you okay, if you if you look at the stats, it's, it's quite interesting. The 
the stats basically paint a very interesting picture of, of what digital assets are used for. And if you look at the amount of, for instance, money laundering that has happened using digital assets, it's decreased. The reason it's decreased is because people that have done that have been arrested by the federal government or the police forces because it's very transparent. Um, but with things like Monero, could it be used to, 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 to do transactions? Yeah, absolutely. But just because it could be used for that doesn't mean that it it isn't it isn't you know it doesn't have utility. So for instance, you know the ten pound note in my wallet could have been you know part of ten thousand that was paid to you know do something you know horrific in some EM country. But quite frankly, I'm using it to buy some beans at my local shop. Yes, and that's kind of the difference. So so if you think about it like this, if you had imagine you had a gold coin, and imagine that coin was a one ounce gold coin, and you'd say oh it's got a face value of seventeen hundred and ninety dollars or whatever spot gold is. But then if you had a piece of paper that said, actually, this was Napoleon's favorite gold coin, it's obviously worth more. And that's kind of what you have with, with, with things like Bitcoin, also Ethereum, any of the, of, the, of, the, of the first generation surveillance coins that were created. You essentially, you know, the value of what it is today is potentially a function of what it was used for historically. You and, call and it surveillance it, coins. That's, that's an interesting term. I've never heard that. Well, that's basically what they are. It's uh, as I, you know, my initial conclusion when I read the white paper was, "Hey, this Bitcoin thing, this is a state surveillance tool." And that's kind of what it is. But you, uh, but you, but you're positive on it though, because it sounds like you're not <laughs> at the same time. No, no, no. I, I <laughs> look, I, I am. I'm, I'm literally on Bitcoin. I think it is going to perform incredibly well. But I'm also acutely aware of what it really is. So, you made a point a little while ago about your concern about governments confiscating it or, or shutting it down, or. What's really interesting is if you look into the history of, of, of Satoshi Nakamoto, who this person or group of people were, there was a paper that was published, I think, in the Law Review about 10 years before. And this was in, I think it was 99, might, might, have, been, might have been 2000, talking about a digital currency. And if you look at the words they used, they were almost identical to Satoshi Nakamoto. And that was published by a couple of researchers at the NSA. Mm. So again, why have governments not been a bit quicker to stop this from happening? Well, if it was created by a state for surveillance, then it's not really in their interest to do so. So let's look at the um, a lot of the proponents or a lot of the people who, who, who are against Bitcoin. So notably, you had Taleb was positive on it and then flipped. And then you, you also had um, Elon Musk being positive on it and then flipping again. For various reasons. Now, I think Taleb's argument uh, was that I think he he seemed to suggest that it's a deflationary um, situation because the number of coins that are being mined will continue to go down. Now, I can't work out why that would be the case. It, it, well, I can understand that, but I can't understand why that would be deflationary. It just means that the amount of coins are constantly going down. Um, and so you have limited well, the rate at which they're being they're being created slows down and then terminates at 21 million units. Yeah, but it kind of never gets there because it's always like it's like the frog. It's so expensive to to mine. Well, it's like the frog jumping across the the pond and only jumping halfway every time. It, yeah. Every halfway will never never really get there in theory. Um, so, it, it, what what do you say to those arguments? And also the the fact that it, they're not environmentally friendly because of the. The amount of energy power. energy use. Yeah. Yeah. So okay, let me let me cover Elon Musk first because it's it's yeah. it's much more <laughs> obvious to me what his his uh, his drivers are. So he has been a big fan of, of crypto, particularly particularly Bitcoin, obviously more recently Dogecoin. So 
what is what is you know what what is his agenda here? And and I think again, my two cents on this, and, and I, I I'm not sure it's necessarily correct, but I think it probably is. Why did he make this massive U-turn in terms of, of Bitcoin, and why why was he so against uh, Bitcoin's use because of the environmental effects? And the reality is, if you if you if you look at the stats, which I did because I I didn't believe what, what I was hearing from him, then 76% of all Bitcoin mining uses renewable energy. 76%. So I I would say his comments about the fact that it's environmentally damaging are probably slightly slightly wrong. I think the truth behind what happened was. Elon Musk is participating in the new carbon trading market in the US. I think he might have got a tap in the shoulders from the State Department saying, hey, probably need to turn it down a little bit on this Bitcoin nonsense. Um, otherwise, you're not going to be part, part of the party of, uh, of the carbon credits. I would suggest he's a, he's a conflicted over speculative wanker, but that's just a personal perspective. <laughs> That's that's probably probably an element of this. Uh, so so yeah. So I think I think that's the real reason why he made the U-turn. And again, why is he focusing on Dogecoin? Because he's realised the power of of community. You know, he has his own community. You know, if he can grow. It's a bit, it's a bit like Trump, isn't it? He's got his own. You know, he makes his own weather. He's got his own uh, gravity. You know, gravitational makes his own form. weather. I like that. I've not heard that. Before. <laughs> I um I heard actually I speaking of world leaders that make their own uh, uh, things, I heard that, uh, that that Vladimir Putin has got this device that blocks GPS. So whenever he goes anywhere, you have these weird ten mile areas where there's no GPS signal whatsoever. So it's, like, it's, like, a, it's like a Marvel superhero. <laughs> well, Putin is a Marvel superhero, isn't he? Yes, he is. So um so that so what about Talib then? So I, I guess we can discount. Elon Musk for for various reasons, but Talib is is perhaps a more reasonable thinker. We we would hope. I, I I've gone off Talib. He's he's very unsound on the whole vac- vaccine issue. But that's a separate right. Thing. Well, we, let's get we'll get onto that because um, um, I don't know what he said. Um, so so look, I I think I can understand what he's saying. I think I think maybe what he's referencing. So is is Bitcoin deflationary? Well, it, it kind of is because if you if again if you look beneath the surface of the numbers. Yes, in absolute terms. Uh, so, uh, sorry, sorry, I, I, I'm so apologetic for cutting in. Sound money is deflationary, but deflation isn't a problem unless you're a unless you're a huge debtor. That is correct. Absolutely, that Good is point. very very true. Um, but but if you look at the 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 number of or, or the quantum of Bitcoin that has either been lost um, or is is stuck somewhere that people have forgotten or or, or basically people have sadly passed away. It's almost thirty percent. It's an wow. insanely large number. Wow. So oh, you just need to forget your password, and you you are literally fucked. I mean, you will you completely. will lose it. Well, or, not literally. Well, no, you. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you'd have to spend some to maybe get that. Um, but yeah, in that guy who, the famous story of the guy who threw his hard drive out, or, and it was it's in so a. He's been literally. He's been. He's been rooting through rubbish. Uh, rubbish bins ever since well no i mean no he asked the the council whether he could go in and try and sift through the rubbish to find the hard drive because there's something like 30 odd million in it maybe even more and they said no but it's it's in there in the ground and no one can get to it because he was mining very early on and then chucked his computer away so there's a there's a movie script in there somewhere yeah yeah but part of the problem that that is part of a problem with cryptocurrencies and that that's why you can see w- why the the general public might be slightly concerned about um using this as a mainstream tool because if you 
not everybody not everybody is very technically minded and wants to wants to have these worries at least for example if you make a payment in a banking system and you send it accidentally to the wrong account number you there is some recourse but there isn't with these systems so th there are problems with them that i think are genuine concerns but as a technology um, they come into their own when the banking system itself comes under massive stress. So if Bitcoin had been formed prior to 2007, I think we might have seen a very different outcome in terms of people pulling their money out of the banks and putting it into anything else. And that anything else could have been Bitcoin. So what happens on the next one is, is the big question. Well, I think that that's part and parcel of why pretty much every single country in the world is, is pushing very hard to try and get their central bank digital currencies out into ether and um, to try and get adoption of these things. Because this will be the solution to, to, to the collapse of the debt-based fiat system. So do you think, so we'll have a parallel currency or do you think it will just be Bitcoin and, and then whatever sterling or dollars you've got just disappears or converts? How, how, can, have you imagined how it might work or not thought about it? So it, it, there's a couple of scenarios, really. I, I think, but, but the one thing that, that I need to kind of make clear here is that, that Bitcoin is not Bitcoin is not money. Yes, you can use it as currency, but it is not money. But what is um, money, though? That's that's what I was asking about before. Ah, because, right. Okay, fine, fine. Because so, because so, you could define it. Tim's got a definition that we that we will listen to in a moment. But if you take the absolute version that um, uh, Yuval Noah Harari says, it's trust. So as long as you trust somebody to to accept it then that's all money needs to be now you might disagree with that but it it, it, it does it does but there's another element to this and and i think i mean look, obviously look, I, I guess i don't need to define this but you know it, money needs to be you know durable portable divisible um uh, a medium of exchange store, um, store of value you just, you just yes account. yes absolutely but it needs to be fungible and bitcoin isn't necessarily fungible because you can have tainted bitcoin and in case so people if, aren't familiar with with fungibility, it's it's a characteristic whereby it could be used anywhere in the world at any 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 time and place. Yeah, well, yeah, but you can't use sterling anywhere in the world. Um, no, but I mean, I, no, but okay, but it, it it's like wherever it's wherever it's uh, accepted, it's it's accepted equally throughout that throughout that region. Right. Because gold is fungible in a way that sterling isn't. Well, gold is more fungible in, in yes. as much as you could probably take it anywhere in the world. And yeah. anybody would take it off your hands. Whereas, so it, so in extremis, you're better off with a Krugerrand than you are with a with a ten pound note. Yeah. So yeah, I'd agree with that. So so um, so so divisible. I mean, like for some currencies, if you look at say the South African rand, it may not be a store of value because it's always going down. Um, that 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 may not fit the definition. Bitcoin may fit it better. Well, I, I don't think any fiat currency does. I mean, I, I remember, I'm, I don't remember looking at this for a little while, but the last time I looked at it, I think Sterling lost about 90% of its purchasing power um, since about 1971. So it's definitely not a store of value. I don't think any fiat currency is. Well, that, well that, I think it was Voltaire that said that all, all fiat currencies depreciate to their intrinsic value, which is zero. So it's only a matter of time. It's like a sort of a, <laughs> a, a slowly decaying you know, value. You know, I, I don't think people realise that, that that our money is not backed by anything. Generally speaking, I, I, I'd be—it's a fascinating survey to do. To ask, like, if you could ask a thousand people, what do you think money is, and what do you think backs money, to get 
what are, how many people would say well absolutely nothing the flip, the, the flip side of that is i do remember seeing some some vox pops 10 years ago and someone was basically took out a either a kruger and or a, a britannia or a sovereign it was an ounce of gold anyway and it was uh they're saying how much is this worth and they go i don't know is it two pounds three pounds five pounds as opposed to you know nineteen eighteen hundred dollars or whatever it is people people have no conception about money in any in any shape or form well that's why i suppose um moving it over to completely digital makes more sense in the sense that we have a consumerist um, society and people just want to spend money and the best way to get them to do that is to have any detachment with the actual physical money themselves because it makes you spend more simply well it's like your your point about the um the 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 the, the dollar the the paper dollar uh, system in the states the uh, the fact that all, all of the denominations of the currencies look uh, the same color and they look the same yeah it's um that that's it's so weird that I suppose only we would think it's strange because we're used to our money. But the fact that a hundred dollar bill looks the same as one does not make any sense to me. Um, well, it makes perfect sense if you want to effectively inculcate a culture of spend, spend, spend. Yeah. 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 And, 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 um, yeah. And when you spend a hundred, so you've got one note, you spend a hundred, you end up with more money. So you feel like you've got more, the more you spend, the more you feel you've got. It's really strange. Whereas there is a, a, a sense of spending money when you break a 50 that nobody still wants to break a 50, do they? I don't know why that is, but you know, even good luck the doing that these days, Paul. even, even though the value of the 50 pound note has been going down and down, it's like they, they still look at you like, like you're crazy. But I did, I did once have a 500 euro note and I was, um, and when I pulled, pulled out the note to buy something in a, in a, um, in, a, in an airport, several old ladies keeled over and died. Well, the guy behind me in the queue just gasped. And I was like, I looked over, I thought, what's, what's his problem? You know, what's I myself happened? would have, I myself would have egregiously vomited. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it was just strange. It was such a strange reaction. I mean, I accept that it's a bit. It was a big no, but you know, when you ch changed up some money to go on holiday, and then you should have lit a cigar with it. That would have been fantastic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah that, I don't think you'd have taken that. I think he would have just passed out. But I, I, it was such a strange reaction. There is, but anyway. Um, so, so going back to the different flavors of, of so, um, so. Are you, you're positive on the technology and you think it will endure and your, your argument against, uh, what Taleb was saying, you know, I think we may have just cut in while you were talking about that. So I can't remember what you said about it. Could you just repeat it if you did? Yeah, sure. So I, I guess to a certain extent, it is deflationary just because of, of the fact that you have people forgetting passwords and, and, and dying and not, not disclosing what where, where their private keys are. So, so to, to, to an extent, it is deflationary. Um, but that's not the reason that it is going to be a phenomenal risk on store of value. Right. And what, what do you mean by that, a risk on store of value? So, okay, so, so Bitcoin is a weird asset because it's it's a store of value, but unlike gold, which is a, a risk-off store of value, um, Bitcoin is a risk-on store of value. Um, and it is it is you know, one of the things or one of the biggest issues you have is the volatility. And I had this debate with a friend of mine the other day who said, well, I'd, I'd never... I'd never buy. I'd never buy Bitcoin because it can it can you know it can fall fifty percent 
Bill on uh, the stock market then. Yeah. Well, exactly. And, and I said, I said, what's your view on Amazon? He said, well, it's awesome. And I was like, well, I bought Amazon stock in the late 90s. Stupidly, I sold it. But the reason I sold it was because it fell 90% in one of those years. I think it was 98. Um, when was a bad time to sell Amazon? Or when was a good time to sell Amazon? Kind of never, right? So it's, it's again, very early in this journey. And I think once you see the volatility reduce, it's, it's going to be far more widely accepted. Right. So just to explain what risk on means, it just means that people are are kind of more bullish about riskier investments and, and willing to spend money, whereas risk off means that they are more conservative and would rather own things that, that are more likely to have traditional value than, than anything that, that could have potential future value. So, um, you know, so it happens in the stock market, it happens with everything, but I'm just looking at, um, an article that, uh, kind of lays out what Nassim Taleb has said. And he did say in 2018 that the Bitcoin standard was an insurance policy against government control and, and, um, and but then he's changed his view, saying his recent paper, Bitcoin Currencies and Fragility, published in late June, Taleb, researcher and long-time quantitative trader, says Bitcoin is worth exactly zero, partly because it requires a sustained amount of interest to maintain it. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because what he was saying was like a an amount of gold can sit and just be an amount of gold, whether um, you know, whether you do anything to it or not. But Bitcoin requires the miners to continue to play in the system for in order for it to work. Does it? I would challenge that thesis. Why does it need more supply anyway? Well, well, well no. I mean, what what it needs is it needs people to maintain the ledger on their networks. Otherwise, and that that's true. But that's not consistent with increasing the supply of Bitcoin, though. No, 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 no. But I think what he means is that it, it's literally, it's like the maintain, maintaining the system. So, But you, you could use that argument about the internet. The internet needs maintenance in order to, to function. You know, things wear out. Um, you know, servers wear out. Um, copper cables wear out. And e- even you know the uh the the what's the other type the the the, the kind of optic ne- c- cables they they wear out so it needs a certain amount of maintenance so that's a kind of it's a bit of a strange argument really mm. you do i mean you, what would you say to that manu I, I i think i broadly agree with what he's saying because there will come a point where there is a a huge disincentive for anyone to 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 continue to to, to validate transactions and keep the network going but uh, again we are a long, long way away from that. That that may happen at some point in the future, but but it's not going to happen anytime soon. Well, how far in the future? I think that the last time I looked at it, um, and I did look at this for a very good reason, which I'll, I'll come on to, I think it was probably about 50 years in the future. Okay. But by then, we may have very highly functioning quantum computers that would probably make it um, a, an invalid technology anyway. I, I don't think it would necessarily make it an invalid. I'm, well, I'm, it, I'm talking it, myself it might, out of Bitcoin now. It, it, it I'm might, thinking it might, Yeah, it might. It might absolutely. It might. It might. It might make uh, Bitcoin uh, a little bit less, uh, less, less uh, valuable. But I think there will be others. And and again, you can have you know quantum encryption as well, which which means that it doesn't matter whether whether the advance of quantum technology you know keep on growing and scaling, it will still be hard to to work out what is behind the encryption. Mm. So the, the, you were going to make another point. You said, um, and I will come back to this 
that point. Yes. Yeah. So sorry. Okay. So so why why okay. So one of the one of the arguments I've I've had again with with a couple of friends of mine regarding who are Bitcoin maximalists. I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist. They they believe the future of everything is Bitcoin. Uh, that's I, I think that's slightly crazy. I don't think it's going to happen. Um, Bitcoin is not going to replace the US dollar. Right. Okay. And for reasons that you've discussed or do, uh, do you have more reasons? Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yes, I do. I do have more reasons. So uh, principally because about 70% of all, all US dollars are actually held outside the United States. So, and also if you, if you look historically, you know, uh, again, for the last decade and a half, I've been hearing that the world reserve status of the, the US dollars is uh, coming into question and it, it's going to be removed. Well, last time I looked, they've still got the biggest military. So until that changes, I'm pretty sure they're going to be the reserve currency. But having said that, whilst I'm, 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 I don't believe Bitcoin is going to supersede the US dollar, I do believe that digital assets um, will at some point. And again, my favorite digital asset is Monero because of the, 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 the incredible fungibility because of it, its fully private nature. And if you look at the, 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 the rate of inflation, so one of the criticisms I got was from, from my friends who were maximalists was, well, there's no, there's no tail emission. You know, there's not this constant stream of coins that are, that are, that are being minted and created. Um, and when you look at the two charts of the tail emission versus um, what happens when you get to ultimately this, this 21 million Bitcoin number is the two curves look very, very similar. The difference is that Monero will keep on functioning and there will always be incentives for people to run the network. With Bitcoin, as, as Talib actually correctly highlights, there isn't an incentive or there won't be at some point in the future. I thought what they were going to get is fees for the transactions and therefore they would get paid that way. So, so yeah, absolutely. But if, if I'm a, a Bitcoin miner, then ultimately in order for me to, to, to earn uh, block rewards, I need to basically go and solve essentially um, math problems to, to be paid those. There comes a point where they become so expensive to solve and and so difficult that the amount of of ASIC miners or, or whatever will be the iteration of, of of mining in those days will not justify actually doing it. So that, who will be but, running the notes? But that's when. But that's where the the complexity of that maths problem can get it. It can basically become more complex in order to make it harder for the miners, but. But it can go the other way. It can become easier. So if I thought this was a way, a self-regulating way of keeping a certain amount of people mining the Bitcoin, because if it gets too complicated, people go, oh, you know, it's not worth it. Let's stop. Exactly. And then as as they stop, it, it was too hard. So it gets easier and it encourages more people to come back in because it makes it worthwhile. So it's kind of self-regulating. But has some, it, it, has some it more, is, what, what is we missed there? Okay, go on. Okay, so 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 it is. If you have a, a, a tail emission, so if you have some degree of inflation, let's say 1%, then, then yes, absolutely, this, this works perfectly. If you don't have any kind of inflation within that asset, then it stops working. Right. So if, if the value starts to go down, then, then the mining of that becomes um, disproportionately more expensive and therefore you won't do it. But... But even though there have been some pretty spectacular collapses in Bitcoin, it's not so far prevented people from going back in and, and, and mining. But I suppose when we get to the point where you'll be mining for, you know, one Bitcoin or less, that could be that could be a problem. Is, is that what you mean? 
Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think that's what, but look, this is not going to happen anytime soon. We are talking decades in the future. So it, it, again, it depends on your investment horizon, but I would, you know, if you're investing in digital assets, I think your investment horizon has got to be at least five years, at least five years. And in that, in that, in that timeline, I, I think there's pretty much zero risk of that happening. But ultimately at some point in the future, and it's, it's something you should be aware of, this will happen. The other um, aspect of Bitcoin is that you have got the blockchain technology, which itself is a a massive event that I don't think I didn't quite understand it until recently. But even though it allows you to create blockchain, Bitcoin is just a representation of blockchain technology. You can do a lot with blockchain technology and there is some very exciting potential things coming from companies in the future. Well, yeah, that, that's a very good point, actually. So, definitely, I, I think I think Bitcoin is is one use case of blockchain, but there are there are many many use cases. And I and I look at the evolution of uh, again Bitcoin, Ethereum. These are two radical technologies, and they're two very different technologies. And um, maybe, maybe it's worthwhile just maybe just just explain what what blockchain actually is. Sure. Yeah, that that would be great. And if you could also explain what the difference is, if possible, between Bitcoin and Ethereum, I think that would be helpful. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Okay, so, you know, what is blockchain? Blockchain is technology that uses chains of blocks, uh, but not, not, not in the conventional sense of those words. So when I say uh, block and chain in this context, what, am I just, um, what, I'm, what I'm actually talking about is uh, digital information, the block stored on a database that is public, the chain. And that's what blockchain is. Right. Okay. And so everybody's got a copy of that, that, that block and that chain. So everyone can query it and see it. And, and therefore it's um, impossible to change it because if you decided to sort of add a couple of zeros to your wallet, that would only be a local um, amendment to the, the blockchain. And, exactly. And it would not, it would not tally with everybody else's and therefore it would be invalid. So it's, it's fair to say it's, I mean, nothing is completely impossible, but it's so, so very, um, secure that it's virtually, it's so very unlikely that you could ever break it. So I think, I think with the, with the Bitcoin blockchain, yes, absolutely. There's, it would take too much computational power to, to seize 51% control and then try and do what is what you're referring to, which is called a double spend attack. Well, how, how um, would you get, just explain what do you mean by 51%? Um, so, I, know, I know what it means, but the people might. Okay. Wonder. So, so, so in, in order to, okay. So basically if you look at, you know, what happens, um, within these blocks, you know, what are these blocks? Well, they, they have three basic components. One basically stores information about the transactions. Uh, the other is information about who is partaking in those transactions. And then the third piece, which is, I think, very important, distinguishes them from other blocks. So that, they're the three components of, of the block, uh, the blocks that make up the blockchain. And essentially, if you if you look basically at the uh, the, the, the composition of uh, essentially any blockchain, they are very similar. Right. So, so what it's basically saying is that that for everybody who's mining these computers, if if there were like, if there was ten computers that were mining it, um, and they're all separate, then you couldn't control what was going on with the with the blockchain. But if you had six of the computers, 
you you could have effect, effectively you'd have like a, a, an increased voting right, and you could you could make changes and 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 um, and destroy it basically if and, and and put in whatever you wanted. Exactly, if fifty one percent of all those uh, of all those nodes that are essentially running say actually we're going to validate this transaction it's a real transaction a genuine transaction you need the consensus of the majority to do this if you have an outlier like for instance someone has taken over one node it won't reconcile with the blockchain the block will not be added and essentially it will essentially move on to the next one so um I, tim you're probably in a position where you're more agnostic about bitcoin and blockchain technology for you uh, absolutely positive in favor of blockchain and as you say neutral on on bitcoin right okay that's really interesting so so you've seen the value in in potentially what blockchain can do because from i was i was watching a documentary that basically says that that the future of blockchain technology could render all the major tech companies redundant because, oh, good riddance to bad rubbish so i mean wouldn't that be incredible so it'd be great um so this is this is this is how profound this technology is it could literally take um take everything we do and put it onto a I mean, I think the, distrib the distributed ledger technology is is probably has almost infinite um, possibilities. Yeah, associated with it. Yeah. What What would you say to that, Manu? It It does absolutely, and 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 maybe it's worth going through the difference in Bitcoin and Ethereum in that oh, case. Sorry, that, yes. this, this this plays into it pretty well. So, I mean, so so Bitcoin is the is uh, you know its claim to fame is that it, it was the first ever successful peer to peer digital currency that could do instant or well near instant payments using the blockchain. So that was that was its, its claim to fame. That that's why it's awesome. But what happened was that in 2013, maybe 2014, I forget the exact date, uh, it became more and more obvious that actually there was so much more we could do with blockchain. And that's essentially when the the the, the founders of, uh, of of Ethereum, so Vitalik Buterin, um, uh, it was a Dr. Gavin Wood and um, uh, Charles Hoskinson, and I forget there was a, there was a lot of other people, but they're the three main characters. And essentially, what what they they did was they they decided that they wanted to build a general purpose blockchain. But not only do they want to build a general purpose blockchain, they wanted to essentially have a, a, a blockchain that could understand a programming language. So a bit like um, if you have an Android phone or, or an iOS phone, you have a whole bunch of applications written in whatever language they're written in um, that can do a whole host of functions. Well, that's kind of what Ethereum is. So Ethereum has what's called the EVM, so the Ethereum Virtual Machine, that can run these decentralized applications or dApps. Now, this makes it an incredibly powerful tool. And it, this is why it's radically different to Bitcoin. And so they're, they're two very, very different things. And their use case, uh, sorry, their utility is very different as well. So can you give us an example of what you could do with the uh, so we we all understand the concept of an app and download it mm -hmm. from whatever app store we've got our, our phone you know um, flavor with. So what could you do with a with a D app that and, and and how would it differ to a normal app? Sure. So I guess the difference the difference would be that it would it would run on a a, a decentralized blockchain with, with with the principal difference. But but for instance, let, let's look at a, a financial transaction. You could use uh, smart contracts. Which are fully decentralized um, to essentially intermediate transactions without the need for a central uh, counterparty or a custodian. 
Right. But you which could, is pretty radical. So you, you could do that um, with an app, but you could do that with... Um, could you could so you you would need another counterparty um, with a normal app. So I'm just trying to think how how you would show that they're they're different. You know how would you show that the technology is completely different on the D app? So in other words, you can't interfere with what's going on with the code on the D app because once it's on the blockchain or once it's uh, once it's on the blockchain, it cannot be changed. It's immutable. And, and right, so yeah. it's it's carved in stone. It's set in stone. It's cemented. You can't go back and make amendments. So once that that code that trade that that code that decides how the trade is going to 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 play out or how the contract's going to play out, once it's there, nobody can change it. So that's that's why it's called a trustless um, environment because it, it sounds it sounds actually counterintuitive but you don't need to trust the other counterparty you just need to trust the technology exactly i mean i i use a platform called called ave to essentially take bits and pieces of my, my crypto portfolio and sometimes i lend them out now i don't know who the hell i'm lending them out to but you can do this using the smart contracts confident that there's no real counterparty risk because ultimately uh, the, the the custody of that is, is via the smart contract. You can't lend money to random people in the real world or even using apps with any real hope of getting it back. Yes. You need to do some kind of diligence and work out who you're lending it to. I remember there was some some apps early on that would there would be some, you know, people in African countries who who needed money for something and you could sort of chip in and 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 help them out. And I always wondered, yeah, I mean great if you are actually doing that, but you've got no idea what you're doing, really. I mean, it could be good. It's like any, I suppose it's like any, um, uh, any charity. So this could be the future of charities as well. I, th I think it would be a better future for charities. I discovered something really disturbing about Bono and his charity where he kept 99% of all the money he raised um, for himself, which, no. was, uh, which was, yeah, I get you know, it was incredible. Has that hit the papers? I don't know, maybe it did. I must have done. It was a little while ago. Okay. So... Um, a so bit like a bit like uh, Bob Geldof's uh, cash that was raised for Live Aid went to basically purchase weapons uh, for the uh, the insurgents from the Russians. That was that was awesome use of money. I, I can't believe Bono's been buying weapons. I mean, that's the last thing we need. I don't know whether <laughs> I don't know whether Bono's been buying weapons. Maybe he uh, maybe he has. I'm not sure. I think I think Bono is a weapon. But anyway, <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> so um, so take take us first of all, Tim. Is are there is there any questions about um, Bitcoin or any any of that technology that you've always wondered and now we've got an expert on would like to ask. Let me see. Um, no, I mean, I, I, I guess the, the the way I would sum up my view, and, I, and I, I don't claim to have all the answers, I've never claimed to have all the answers, is as a libertarian, I have to support the, the, the principle of cryptocurrency and, and Bitcoin in particular. But as a value manager, as a value fund manager, it, it simply falls in the not appropriate to use for clients category. Can you, th there's this idea that you can't, um, and you alluded to this, Manu, there is this idea that you can't actually make money or, in, or, or earn interest on your holdings, but you're saying you can. How does, I, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to work out how that works. Yeah, no, you can. So, so for instance, if if I if I have all of my sterling in my my bank account, I will probably earn zero if I'm lucky. Yeah. If I have euros, I'll 
if I'm if I'm if I'm very very lucky, I might get some kind of nominal negative rate. But what I can do is if I convert it to let's say a sterling stablecoin, and essentially a, stable, a sterling stablecoin is basically just a digital representation of sterling held in an account. And if I was to then lend that out, I could earn probably, I don't know, nine, ten percent per annum. That sounds pretty good. What's the if what's I, the downside? Where do I sign? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So so look, de- de- decentralized finance is 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 bloody complex at the best of times. Uh, it is it is very, very new, very novel, and it is it is not the most user-friendly of things. But essentially what you're doing is let's say I want to take a position leveraged 5x in Bitcoin. Well, I need to borrow four of the X if I only have one Bitcoin. So what happens is people like me will be willing to lend you know, sterling, uh, uh, you know, sterling stablecoin, euro stablecoin, dollar stablecoin is 95% of the market. So that will probably be the better one. And that's why you can earn 12% with that rather than euros or, or sterling. But they will then borrow that money and then they will, they will actively trade. But because it is essentially over collateralized, they'll get automatically closed out. So there's no, there's no issue of, of basically counterparty issue, uh, default being a problem. The only area that you have to be very cautious and you have to be very careful about this is failures in the code of the smart contract. Right. And that's exactly what happened to Poly Network about two weeks ago when some, some apparently some white hat uh, hacker, so a good guy, uh, stole $600 million from them. Right, because their code was, I understand that now. So a co- the code was, there was a flaw in the code on the network and therefore he exploited it. Did he give all the money? He gave some of the money back, didn't he? But not. He gave half of the money back, and and no one's heard from him since then. So I, I I don't know what's going on there. Right. Okay. Interesting. So we were talking about actually right at the top of the show your history, and sure. we haven't got completely up to date, have we? We 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 haven't. But I've just had a thought that I that I just wanted to to, to talk about briefly, which was the again my my focus on privacy. So. I remember I first started using the internet when I was at school, probably in the early 90s. And back in those days, the internet wasn't encrypted. So anyone could see what I was, I mean, not that there was anything to do because it was so new, there was nothing on there. Um, and then what happened over time was this, 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 this marketplace, the world's biggest marketplace, arguably, eventually without any regulator or any supervision or anything, decided to encrypt the entire internet. So previously it was HTTP, and then now if you look at a website, it, it will be HTTPS, and the S stands for secure, I encrypted. So why is that important? Why is that relevant? Well, I think it's relevant because it shows the direction of travel. So let's look at this from the perspective of internet money, also known as cryptocurrencies. Things like Ethereum, whilst I'm a huge fan of Ethereum, I absolutely love Ethereum, I think it's got an amazing future. Very, very big fan of Bitcoin. They, they are 100% trackable, traceable, and they are not fungible. So eventually there'll come a point in time when you will want to have your internet money either as encrypted or actually no, probably more encrypted than your internet traffic. And, and when that happens, which I think is going to happen very soon, you're going to see some pretty insane moves within those privacy-focused coins like Monero, for instance. Right. And how many flavors of privacy coin would you be keeping an eye on so i i don't i don't own a huge number i i only have a couple that that i've spent a lot of time and effort doing diligence on and, and look you know i think you know just in terms of risk warning i would thoroughly recommend anyone that, that is thinking about getting involved or, or investing 
you really need to do a lot of research. And, and uh, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time researching the teams, researching the tech, um, and also researching the communities. I think the community element is probably one of the most important things. And based on that, there's there's a couple that I think are very, very good. Um, the majority are not. The majority are, and again, I think, I think Tim, you mentioned this. I think there's, there's I think, 7,500 uh, cryptocurrencies, 99% of which will be worth zero, mm. and a very small percentage of which will be worth an absolute fortune. Right. And and would you be willing to mention the ones that have passed the, the, the your, your scrutiny? Well, Bitcoin has critical mass now, doesn't it? So that's <laughs> yeah, going to that, be one but, of the survivors. But that's not so, <laughs> so private, though. No, so so in terms in terms of the privacy coins, again, look, Monero is my favourite. Um, not necessarily because it's the best technology, but because it has the biggest network effect. Uh, it has a huge user base and a huge dev team. That's number one. Number two is is another uh, cryptocurrency with a really silly name, and I wish they would change it because it would mean adoption would be much easier. Called Pirate Chain, and even even their symbol is A R R R. Or which is they're they're really going after the millennials with that one, aren't they? It's anyway, it's such a stupid name, and I've kind of mentioned this to them before, saying, "Guys, you really need to kind of just have something slightly slicker." But anyway, who am I to tell them how to do this? Their technology is light years ahead of Monero. Their technology is probably, I think, at the moment, as far as I can tell, they are probably the most advanced um, of of any of any cryptocurrency in terms of. Did William Shatner ever get Shatcoin off the ground? Because that's uh, something I was probably I'd probably have endorsed. I'm, I'm not sure he did. So, well, sick transit, Gloria Mundi. Um, but um, the what was the other? Oh, yeah, sorry. And the other one that, that I think is really novel is called Dero. So basically, Dero. So okay, if if um, if Bitcoin is to Monero, um, then essentially Dero is to to Ethereum. So so basically, it is a um, a, a essentially a. Uh, a, a secure and private version of Ethereum. So it has the the, the Dero virtual machine, just like Ethereum. You can run decentralized applications on it, but it's fully secure and fully private, unlike Ethereum, which is a public ledger again. Right, I see. Interesting. Tim, you, you, you usually ask a question about what do you think's going on in the world? That might be a good one to put to Manu. So Manu, what do you think's going on in the world? What do I think is going on? I, I I think the world has gone slightly insane, and and it keeps getting more insane as time goes by. And I'm hoping at some point next year this begins to to calm down and we get some some degree of normality back. I saw something. I saw a presentation, including one of our uh, former guest uh, Nick Hudson from Pandata, South African gentleman, very accomplished South African gentleman, um, recently. And it the what the question we've been asking for the last year plus is cock up or conspiracy and they they sort of finesse or refined that into cock up conspiracy or murmuration and a murmuration is one of those movements you get i think it's a murmuration of starlings when you see those incredible movement of birds that are sort of flocking together but 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 subtly peeling apart but then sort of rejoining each other but it's it's a, it's just kind of like an organized chaos in in motion which i just sort of an intriguing intriguing idea but uh but but to put the same question to manu cock up conspiracy or, or murmuration i i would have to say this was probably intentional i, I think it probably is a conspiracy i i, I can't i can't give you a hundred percent on that but i'd say it was probably like a 70 delta I'd, um, I'd, I'd certainly be inclined to that supposition myself because, well, okay, so let's let's take take a slightly different tack. Um, one of our, our last guest, one of our last guests on the pod was a lady called Jasmine Bertels, 
And she has a website called moneymagpie.com. And moneymagpie.com recently featured an interview with, uh, or a statement, I suppose, from Jennifer Curry, who has links, uh, had links with, with Boris Johnson, but I think he's also active in the cryptocurrency space. Uh, anyway, she 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 basically suggested that this is, and this is something I, I do subscribe to. This is not about a virus. This is about a monetary reset. The West is bankrupt. The G7 is bankrupt. The currency system is bankrupt. This is a a means of effectively recalib resetting the monetary system, recalibrating everything, uh, with a view to introducing central bank digital currency and biosurveillance and Chinese social credit scores and all of this kind of stuff. Do you do you have any do you see any validity to that uh, thesis? Uh, yeah, look, I I think I think there's there's some some quite powerful elements of truth to that. And if if you've ever had the misfortune of reading Klaus Schwab, the CEO of the World Economic Forum's latest book, COVID: The Great Reset, then then yeah, that kind of fits that agenda very well. Uh, but but yeah, absolutely, the, the points are very valid, and I think I think it's really worth reiterating just how cataclysmic the outlook is for for debt. I think prior to COVID, what was what was U.S. Um, government debt? Twenty trillion, twenty two trillion. You know, what it's is now, it today? It's now 28? 30. It's yeah. now approaching 30. And, and the forecast but for the, the 20 end was, of... The 20 was unpayable, and that's under the on-balance sheet stuff. When you take yeah, the off-balance sheet liabilities is. like pensions, then it's 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 well through 100. It, it, yeah, it's it's absolutely insane. And I think the forecast for the end of, of uh, the... Uh, nine, uh, sorry, the, the 2020s even, so 2029, 2030, is for something closer to 100 trillion, which the is... Killer, the killer stat that I heard recently, which I'm, I'm, I'm sure is, is valid, is... 25% of all the dollars that have ever existed were printed last year. That is very true. That is very true. And I, I think the other the other issue you have is is that you 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 have this this insane game where you have essentially the the uh, the for instance the UK you've got the debt management office issuing um, US covies, and then you have the good host of folks, the Bank of England, buying those government bonds, and and at to a point whereby about 40% of all the guilds that have ever been issued are now owned by the central bank, which is, that, that's definitely going to continue into the future. And I'm, I'm sure that's highly sustainable. That's um, m- m- monetization of the government debt. It is. I mean, if, uh, I, I think- This, is, this is basically Weimar, Weimar en route. Pretty much. I mean, Japan's worse. I think Japan last time I looked was about 60%. Um, I think the US is, is, is not quite as bad, about 30% is owned by the Fed. But these are not good stats. And, and, and what this does is, I think, You've got to look at it from the perspective of, of how how do they how do they ever get out of this? You know, how do they get to a situation where you are ever able to pay this back? And the answer is that, that they're not going to. It's, and, it's it's been to be fair, it was clear. I mean, I'd suggest it was clear back in two thousand and eight. And the reason why two thousand and eight is is relevant to this is that that's an opportunity that was effectively given up by the authorities to reset things to have a perhaps short, sharp, painful deflation that would have eliminated half the capacity on Wall Street, but would have enabled the system to clear. And that's not the decision that was taken. The decision that was taken was basically to kick the problem into the long grass and issue yet more debt and print money and print money and print money. And we now know where we are. We know where we're going. And it's not cheery. Uh, no, because uh, I find it interesting that you saw you saw the equity markets recover pretty quickly with a V-shaped recovery. And then the regular economy is is in an L-shaped it's, recovery. It's on, it's on its it, knees, it, yeah. It ain't, it ain't recovering. You know, I think last time I looked, 20% of all SME businesses in the UK have, have not opened their doors again. They've gone bust. 
Um, and if you're a non-essential business, and how the government can detect what is non-essential and what isn't, you know, if you have to feed your family, surely any business is essential, right? I, I don't know, but it, it's it's not good, particularly when you look at the fact that 70% of all employment is generated within those SMEs. You know, this is this is going to be a real issue, I think, maybe for the rest of the generation. So, how would you personally be thinking to protect yourself in the coming years for for what may be unstoppable? So, so initially, I was thinking about moving to Mexico. Um, but, but, <laughs> right. So, popular okay. venue. I know two people who've relocated to Mexico. Really, really. Goodness <laughs> yeah. me! And they're willing. But, they're willing to. They're willing to take their chances with the cartel as opposed to with government, with Western governments. That says something, doesn't Just it? Saying something. Wow. Yeah. That that really is. So, um, but unfortunately, my my wife told me in no uncertain terms that was not happening, and um, and so I'm not moving to Mexico. Or you're moving to Mexico, and she isn't. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was her suggestion. That was her suggestion. She said, "Why don't you go and we will stay here?" And I was like, "Well, okay, that's that's not what I was suggesting." So, so I, initially, I was going to kind of, you know, try and escape from the issue. But look, quite frankly, I, I think it doesn't make any difference where you go in the world. You are still going to have this issue, and you, you know, we're in a position whereby we are seeing the enforcement of, of, I guess, what can only be called medical tyranny, and I think it will continue until people stop obeying these these unjust rules the uh, weird thing about the weird thing about this is that it, it relies almost entirely on people's consent they're not actually forcing some of this stuff it's being done through coercion which which last time i checked was a breach of the nuremberg code uh, agreed but it, it's being done on such a monstrous scale you have to assume that there's there is you know there is um uh, 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 let's say an alliance of 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 malign forces operating here. So so okay yeah that yeah I I, I agree I think I think there is I think when you have the entire media verse um, basically doing the bidding of, of various governments for for what are clearly not necessarily good things then then yeah it's difficult to uh, to, uh, to 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 do much about that but what what you know what I would do or what I'd recommend to anyone is try and make sure that you have access to some alternatives to the fiat money system you know gold yeah. silver. Yeah. digital assets um and that is probably the most efficient the most effective way of of protecting yourself from what is coming is it going to be hyperinflation is it going to be deflation I, i'm i'm not i'm not sure it, I think it could be anything have. couldn't it it could be anything could i think be both. i think we i think it will probably be both um and i think what will, will, will end very quickly the system will be when when we see a lot of deflation which which i think we could see by the end of the decade so you're, um sorry paul go on Oh, so I was just saying. So you, you're more in the deflationary camp as opposed to the hyperinflationary camp, which would, which would be supportive of of cryptocurrencies and 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 um, that that's quite interesting. Why why do you, why do you think it's deflationary? So so I'm in the hyperinflationary camp. Um, short to medium term, long term, I'm in the deflationary camp. Okay. And, and okay. The, 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 the you could also that... have them in the other way around as well. You could have the deflationary shock followed by hyperinflation, because the one thing that's going to kill off the central banks is going to be deflation, because they've got so much debt to that they can't possibly uh, sustain. I think. I think while they've, they've they've got their money printers going, I think I think this will probably continue. We'll probably see inflation first before we see deflation. But and and, and I think what's going to create the deflationary, or sorry, what is going to ultimately stop this system from expanding its its balance sheet well, out of an item is going to be technology but also it's going to be the widespread repudiation of the paper system it'll be people just saying well i'm not fuck this for a game of soldiers i'm, I'm using something else and it'll, people will people will go back to barter rather than use worthless worthless currency but wouldn't they um so if if we, if we just imagine how this could all play out people start to notice that 
I think that's but, already happened. Well, the, the, okay. no, what, what Mises called the, the crack-up boom into real assets has already begun. So the price of butter hits £10, and then people say, you know what, this, this, is, this is getting out of hand. And then they start to look for alternatives to protect their their assets. You know, so they go into commodities, say, so they go which into commodities. Been the case for the last twelve months, right? Um, but that accelerates, and yeah. then um, so gold three thousand uh, dollars, Bitcoin maybe hundred and thousand, yeah, hundred thousand, yeah. And does that sound right? And then and then because when Akil Patel was on. He, I think we asked him this question, and he said that in the cyclical world that that he looks at, um, the way it would normally go is hyperinflation, then deflation, which is kind of what Manu's saying here. And and I'm just wondering if it is deflation first, how that would manifest itself, how we would see that. Personally, I thought when COVID hit. Um, if something was going to call... government, sorry, the government response to COVID hit, which is perhaps the the fairer way to describe this well, clusterfuck. Yeah, well, I was just going to describe it as a deflationary shock that that could have then tipped everything over. So once once it, once we knew what the response was going to be, shutting down businesses, and as Manu says, like you know, twenty percent of SMEs have shut their doors for good. That's mm. a deflationary scenario. So how can that why hasn't that extended why why are house prices in the uk and i probably think in america as well although i haven't looked at them are hitting all-time highs that's it's that's kind of insanity but it's only insanity if you don't look at the amount of money that's been printed and mm. just and and say well it's only in relation to how much money's been printed that these things have gone up it's not because they are they they're beating they're, they're beating the money money. the money printing argument may be somewhat fallacious in that the central banks are printing money but the commercial banks aren't i don't think there's an awful lot of commercial bank lending activity going on i don't think that i don't think there's the, the sort of real money to call it that is is actually being uh printed at the same rate as, as central bank reserve money so that would suggest a a somewhat a, a counterbalance to the to the inflationary argument, so that's that's deflationary if the banks are doing that. So this, so it's an epic, it's an epic battle. It's, it's an it's an epic battle, certainly. Yeah. Well, how? Just one thing, I'll just just give a a, a shout out to in, in passing. It's another another uh, former guest, Chris McIntosh, yes. of uh, Capital Exploits. Because I've I'm just about to buy one of one, some of their merch before we get into our own merch. Because we we Paul, we need to think. <laughs> we need to think merch. Yes. Um, Sorry, yes. And he's—I can see from his site—he's—he's he's currently retailing a, a T-shirt that says "Long Real Shit, Short Financialized Shit," which I think is the perfect, perfect investment <laughs> advice for anybody right now. That, that summarizes what I just said. That's brilliant. I love it. <laughs> we better get them on our T-shirts before they see his, and uh, yeah, we better get in there quick. The the, the other T-shirt I want to get is by the Babylon Bee, which is I identify as vaccinated. Right. <laughs> That's actually very good as well. Brilliant. So, um, so Manu, was there, uh, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about that we haven't covered and any, any areas that you, that you'd like to discuss? I, I think the only other areas I, I, I wanted to really cover was, was the fact that I think the events of the last 19, 20 months, I think have created something very interesting in, in society. You've had, 
you know, I, I guess you've had people like me that for a long time have kind of been uh, less than enthused about about governments and and their infringement into civil liberties and freedom. But it really, I think, came into reach for a lot of people over the last last year and a half or so. And I think more and more people are beginning to have the same opinion as me, which is that you know what is government? Well, government is is uh, is is the, the the force that has a monopoly on violence. The it's it's an it's an art artifact uh, of society that ended in twenty twenty one. I was just I don't think government is is coming back from this mess. I, I, I don't think so. I think I, I, I think, think faith have. and trust in government is is gone possibly forever. Certainly for for the lifetime of anybody that's living through this shit. Yeah, no, I agreed. I, th- I think that's right. And in order, in order to st- you know to stay sane, we've all got things that we like to do, like either film or music or stuff like that. You you've got something that um, that that keeps you occupied at night. What what's that? Yes, yes, I'm I'm a uh, an, an anarchist artist. Um, obviously, using a pseudonym because uh, we like because... the we like the cut of this jib. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so yeah, so, I mean, I, I guess my, my ideological beliefs are, are apparently not good. So, you know, I'm, I'm anti-war, pro-peace and love, but that's a very bad thing apparently in modern day times. So, um, so I had to use an, a, a, a pseudonym. Where to, do you to, stand on pedophile billionaires? Uh, are you pro, pro well, or anti? I, I, I am anti anyone who's been to Epstein Island. Truth bomb. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but yeah, so I, I essentially make... Uh, digital artwork and uh, and a lot of it is is political a lot of it is uh, things I have learned or interesting things it, it, it's it's just something I do to um, I guess try and ease the burden of frustration I sometimes feel with uh, with some of the conversations I have with people that are that are I think somewhat brainwashed and somewhat asleep to what's you're happening. like an NFT Banksy and, and so I okay funny story I I basically watched an interview of of Hugh Hendry the very angry Scottish fund manager who is no more a fund manager. And it was hilarious. He was so anti, anti-crypto. anti it was, it, was, it was quite funny. So I thought, yeah, it'd be hilarious. He's a great, he's a great contraindicator now, isn't he, really? Old Hugh. I, I, I used to absolutely love Hugh. During the last financial crisis, I thought he was an absolute genius. And then I don't know what happened, but he shut down his fund and he builds houses in. I, I think, I think, I think what parts. happened was he met some of his investors. Oh, right. Okay. And well, or, or perhaps his investors met him. Is he starting up again? No, well, he's, 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 he sort of seems to be reinventing himself as a kind of surfer dude out in somewhere in the, um, uh, is it the BVI or, you know, somewhere like Cayman or something. Yeah. Um, but basically, he, he seems to be reinventing himself as a surfer dude. So he's going around with a baseball cap, riding a skateboard, hanging out with models. Mm. Uh, to say he's left the reservation would be the understatement of all understatements. He's having a he's having a cracking midlife crisis. Certainly, that that's a good one to have. I mean, yeah, yeah, being in the Caribbean and doing that, that sounds awesome. Surfing. We 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 had good. we had one of his marketers came to see us about seven or eight years ago when he still had a career, and they said that he'd be, he'd been banned from going on the road because of how he you know how he how he told the story in relation to potential clients. Um, He's been he's been batshit for for quite a while, but the 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 rate at which he's going more batshit is is really a joy to behold. It's it's really quite something to watch. <laughs> anyway, I, I love the interview he did, and I thought it was so funny. I thought you know what would be ironic is if I made a three D piece of artwork of his face and basically made it out of bitcoins just because he hates bitcoins so much. And then then I thought you know what would be even funnier is if I turn this into an NFT, which I did. 
And then I, I, I pinged him a message. Now, he doesn't respond on LinkedIn, but he responded almost immediately on Instagram, which is weird. And um, I said, he's hey, stay down with the youth. He, he is, yeah, I guess he is. So I said, hey, you, I, I know how much you, you love crypto and NFTs. So I made this NFT of you and, you know, sent him the link. Uh, and he came back and said, you know, you're the third person today that's talked about NFTs. I need to look into this. I thought nothing more of it. Anyway, about a week later, kind of logged onto my Rarible account, which is where I created the NFT. And I thought, oh, that's weird. Someone's bought my Hugh Hendry image. Who the hell would buy this image? I suspect Hugh Hendry himself bought the image. Ba, ba, ba. Now, does that mean that you get paid every time somebody buys that from him? So every time it's traded, you get like a percentage? I do. So you can set the parameters when you create the NFT. I think I set mine at 5%, but you can set it at 10, 12, 15, mm. whatever that you want, really. So you can you will always get this 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 slice of the earnings, whatever they are, in the future. Right. Okay. And and are you allowed to disclose the amount? Was it obviously was it enough for a cup of coffee or or uh, a, a car or a twenty twenty one cup of coffee, twenty twenty two cup of coffee? <laughs> so it was. Uh, so it was. Yeah. It was. It was. It was. It wasn't a huge amount. It was. It was zero point one Ethereum. Okay. Uh, yeah. Right. Hang on, so what is that? That's about about three hundred and something bucks. Not a lot. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, you could you could make a few of those. That that would be about that. as much as you need to snort coke off a hooker's arse. I'm guessing. <laughs> oh my god! I'll, I'll, I don't have a frame of reference for that number, but yeah, <laughs> right. I'll, I'll take your word for it. Oh my goodness! So I wasn't aware of the Ethereum hookers ass cocaine exchange rate, but I think now we're we're getting closer we're getting close to, to it. Yeah, um, yeah, that was a bit of a left turn that I didn't see coming. Um, <laughs> <laughs> said 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 that said the fund manager to the anyway. Let's let's move on. Yeah, so um, so I th I think we should probably go on that that note to uh, to media picks then. Uh, oh, oh no, just be just before we do that, if somebody wanted to get hold of any of your artwork how would they do that do you have to go to rareable or is there any other way so i, I don't actually sell it I, I don't um i didn't really think there'd be a huge amount of demand for it but um i, I can i can ping over the the, the the link to the instagram page where people are welcome to look at it if they wish to do so um but uh, but no it's not actually available to to, to buy oh no now you said that everyone's going to want to buy it because it's not available it's all to part sell. of a cunning plan isn't yeah, it yeah indeed indeed you're coming across frankly like a, a bit of a an elon musk if you don't mind me saying so <laughs> controlling every facet of the manu nft rarity fund management market in digital imagery that 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 could be that couldn't be that couldn't be further from the truth i definitely i definitely am i'm, I'm not like an elon musk um i, I think um yeah well whilst funny, I might even, have... even the name elon musk sounds like cockney rhyming slang for something quite filthy doesn't it don't be an elon musk <laughs> i was watching the film the gentleman uh, i don't know if you've seen it the guy latest guy richie one yeah that, uh, that's actually a brilliant film I've, I've got to be honest i i uh i have a very very different opinion of hugh grant who i thought was very one-dimensional after that i thought it was brilliant. oh i lo i loved i loved that as well yes i did like hugh grant's turn in that if you've seen paddington 2 you've seen another fantastic hugh grant performance that's why it's, i love the film so much um it's just basically him he's brilliant and in the gentleman he's Excellent. He actually makes the film for me, which I think in in many places, a lot of the characters sound a lot like Guy Ritchie, you know, that the dialogue is not one that anybody would ever use. And, but it's, it's funny and it works, but the Cockney rhyming slang stuff is, I've grown up with Cockney rhyming slang 
and especially you know talking to traders in the old days um everything would be a cockney rug everything virtually would be cockney rug oh, don't be a gareth hunt about it mate and they talked about a yard didn't they in in the gentleman which is a currency term for a billion and mm. and um but some of the other ones there was there was one that they used the kettle that i didn't know and i had to look it up because it pissed me off so much that i didn't know it and you know he goes that's a, that's a naughty kettle you got there and he's talking about his watch so it's it's actually kettle and hob fob which was the old fob, fob watch fob watch yeah. yeah so did you know that tim no you didn't no. know that one right so um so yeah they've got some uh, some ones also that I, what those boys are saying to the guy who's who's, who's turned up in his 4 by 4 i have no idea like virtually no idea what they're saying i can't i can't work it out so it must be some new version but i also wondered whether because Cockney rhyming slang existed for the the sort of underclass to discuss things in front of either the police or 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 the the richer class, um, so they wouldn't know what they were talking about. I wondered whether, in this era of surveillance, whether some modern form of language needs to develop so people just don't know what you're talking about, you know, or you can hide what you're talking about. So it, it, it's it's just an interesting thought that there will be no, every conversation will be recorded. Everything is 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 being monitored, but the only way to stop it is to be able to communicate in a way that 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 can't be tracked. But anyway, um, the gentleman is a good film. I, I suppose I could give that one as my my media pick. But um, wh what would you uh, what would you have as yours, Manu? So I read a really interesting book called The Price of Tomorrow by Jeff Booth really really interesting uh, book that, that helped certainly in my mind cement potentially how this this entire um system was going to eventually uh, end and and it, it basically is, is quite quite interesting it talks about the the deflationary impact of technology and how this will at some point supersede the inflationary impact of money printing and and infinite debt issuance so again very well written very researched and and i would thoroughly recommend it um to uh to, to anyone who wants to have a bit more of a well-rounded understanding of of his take which look this is perhaps not how things end i don't know but it's it's a very interesting angle to look at thought-provoking very much so what's what sort of time scale does he think deflationary the de deflationary um cycle will kick in or does he not talk about that he doesn't really talk about the time scale, but but I, I from, from the way the, um, again this is this is my own uh, conclusion I've kind of taken out of this, but the, the way that he's he's putting things into perspective, it would probably be five, maybe ten years. So again, it kind of ties in with the end of the decade. Right, interesting. Tim, what's yours? Mine for for this week is um, a film I was rewatching over the last um, last day or so. Um, there will be blood. By oh, yeah. Paul Thomas Anderson with Daniel Day Lewis. I loved it. Uh, it's the, the sad thing about this 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 mess that we're living through is I'll, I'll probably never go to the cinema again. I can't envision myself going to the cinema again because I just, I just for any number of reasons I can't really face the prospect. But clearly we can make up for that, you know, on at home and on you know, Netflix or you know, Amazon Prime or whatever. But I, I saw this when it came out and I thought it was great. Watching it again over the last day or so, I think it's the most magnificent film of the 21st century. It's just absolutely magnificent. Um, Daniel Day-Lewis is, is is worth the price of mission on his own. Um, really intense, edgy kind of, um, what do you call it, method actor, I suppose. 
but uh, I, I loved rewatching it so much that I've now bought the the book on which it's based, uh, which is a book called Oil Exclamation Mark by Upton Sinclair. And I was thinking just before the pod that I wonder how many people thought. Well, I, I thought of buying it, but I was a bit confused by the title. <laughs> anyway, um, and funnily enough, Upton Sinclair is also featured in the other film that I don't know if I mentioned last time, but a film called Mank. I know yes. we talked about it during the week, Paul, but Mank is about the the making of uh, Citizen Kane uh, and Herman Mankiewicz, who is the scriptwriter. Uh, and Upton Sinclair features in 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 the Mank film as well as someone who's runs an ultimately unsuccessful bid for the California governorship. Um, anyhow, uh, there will be blood. Uh, superb film. I, I don't think it puts a, puts a step wrong. Superb screenplay by I think Paul Thomas Anderson from the the Upton Sinclair book. Superb turn by um, Daniel Day Lewis. Uh, a, a fantastic and very eerie soundtrack. It's just it's just perfection. I, I can't praise this film highly enough. That moment when he's walking around the land that he's trying to obtain, and the the oil is literally just seeping from in the ground. That's that that's the moment I always remember from that film. It's got, it's got multiple moments, I'd say. And another reason why it has a particular resonance now is that I'm also, at the moment, I'm reading a book called Titan, uh, which is a biography of um, John D. Rockefeller, um, who I think at the, at the time he lived was the rich, became the richest person on the planet. Um, and you look at the picture of him on the front of the book, which is by Ron, uh, Ron Chernow, um, and he looks like the devil incarnate, which is probably closer to what he actually was. But the weird thing about the the Rockefeller biography, which I haven't finished yet, but it's 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 very well written, is that Rockefeller was at the one on one hand, I mean, he was basically he was a an oil guy that ended up basically taking a sort of monopoly position in, in the whole oil trade of of North America, and then got a stranglehold on the railroads and all, all the kind of these other ancillary things. But um, he was, on the one hand, a, a, a fervent or appearingly, seemingly fervent practicing Christian, but also the son of a, literally, a son of a snake oil salesman. It's just these stories are just so incredible. And um, so that gave an extra resonance to the, the film. But There Will Be Blood, I'd say, would, is, is now firmly my top five of best films of all time. High praise indeed. Manu, how do people get in contact with you if they'd like to get more of your opinions? Do you write any blogs or or what? What's, are you on Twitter? I'm not on Twitter, or, or certainly not not me. My alter ego might be, but uh, but I guess the easiest way of of, of getting in what's your alter ego called, uh, Manu? So we can check him out. My uh, my alter ego is called uh, Dex Luther London. Is what I use. Um, but the easiest way is probably probably via Telegram. Right, uh, re- old old school. Uh, no, <laughs> no not, not that kind of telegram. <laughs> so, yeah, so um, here all night. So, no, so no, should no, you no. should you've admitted to that alter ego, or is it? It's, I was I was teasing. So, if you want to edit that, Paul, that's fine. No, no, no. I'm Manu. It's totally your choice. Uh, I mean, to be fair, no, no, I, I don't really mind. I mean, it, it, the only reason I used the alter ego was uh, it was it was frowned upon whilst I was employed at Lloyd's, which I'm no longer employed. Ah, okay. So, so, so you're not that bothered, basically. No, not really. No, no. I mean, it's just, it's just, just something I do for a bit of fun. So, it's, yeah. uh, although to be fair, if I can sell NFTs for, uh, for, for, uh, for where they're trading right now, then yeah, maybe something different in the future. But uh, mm. yeah. So, so you haven't stuck them on Rarible then? 
I stuck one on Rarible and, and someone who may or may not have been Hugh Hendry weirdly bought it pretty much instantly. So yeah, but, I, 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 I haven't made any more since then. You haven't made it, but can't you just transfer the ones that you've made over? There is, I mean, it can be anything, can't it? An NFT, it can be, it can be a picture, but it can be an MP3, it can be, you know, whatever. So isn't Absolutely. it quite easy? Isn't it just a question of, you know, copy paste? It, it it's slightly more involved than that, but yes, it, it is very very easy to do it. Um, I just I haven't done it just because I I'm still trying to. In fact, the only reason I made that Hugh Hendry piece was because I I wanted to get a get a rough understanding of how it was done, what the process was, and how these things were minted and how they were created. It was yeah, it was it was mainly to educate myself rather than actually use it as a platform to to sell my artwork. I've got a piece of artwork that I'd like to sell which I mine, not mine, but I created on the last day of 2020. And it was color sampled of the coronavirus and it was put into dots and it's called fuck 2020, which of course was used by, um, uh, the writer of, um, screen wipes charlie brooker, Charlie Brooker. That's it, his name went out of my head. Charles Charlton Brooker. Yeah. He, um, yeah, he used fuck 2020 as well. So I thought it was, oh, it, was okay. it, it was a quite a fitting end to 2020 and I I thought just, you know, there's got to be some way to encapsulate it and that was it. So yeah, I've got to talk to you offline about how to put that up at some point. Um Sure. Um but look, Manu, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was really fascinating. We've got to have you back on um at some point because I'm sure you know, as these technologies develop and as, as more as learn about them, you know, you're going to have a, a very solid opinion on them that we'd like to hear about. Just thank you for your time and um, um, best of luck with everything. Sure. Fantastic. Listen, thanks so much for having me on. Our pleasure. All the best. Fantastic. Thanks. Bye-bye. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.